Welcome back, Smart First Responder community, to a mini-series created during the Phase 4 of the first challenge hosted at the Muscatatuck Urban Training Center. The first competition focus is to produce marketable prototypes that demonstrate indoor localization tracking and tracking of first responders within one meter accuracy without any pre-deployed infrastructure. In this mini-series, you will hear from many of the entrepreneurs, first responders, and team members involved that address the challenges and opportunities of Z-axis tracking from multiple perspectives around scalability, usability, affordability, and more. This challenge is administered by the Indiana University Crisis Technologies Innovation Lab and funded by the NIST Public Safety Communications Research PSCR Division. Enjoy this deep dive into Z-axis tracking, keep innovating, and let us know what you think. officially the end of day three, and we're sitting here in our accommodations in Muscatatuck. I'm sitting here alongside Emmanuel from, and Cyril from Rescuenomics. How are you guys doing today? Doing very well, thank you. What's the experience been like for you guys? I mean, you guys have gone through two full days of, of testing and evaluation. Paint a picture on kind of what the experience in the past two days has been like for you. Well, for me, you know, it's our first time doing live testing. So initially, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I read the rules and regulations, but you know, being here physically is a lot different from what I had planned for. It was quite stressful. You know, it's been very, very long days and that adding to my usual job, you know, I was multitasking two things at the same time. There's cases where I've just finished from a meeting. I've got a test like five minutes later. But we've been able to combine all of that. But in terms of the actual experience here, it's been very rewarding because you're actually able to see, you know, what side of us a vision, you know, coming closer to um, reality and that just you know gives you a form of appreciation of why you're doing what you're doing for me i would say uh it's been a very eye-opening couple of days eye-opening in the sense that what i think I, what i'll gain most from the experience is the diversity uh, the people i've met here from france someone from belgium and uh so it's it's been a robbing of minds and it's been very rich the environment. Uh, I had a couple of years in the army, so I'm used to the whole training thing. But I really, I heard so much about Muscatatuck in the past, and it's a privilege to be here too. And you make the serial in terms of kind of why you're doing what you're doing, and kind of every team kind of has a story. But what's the rescue nomic story? How did you guys? Why do you exist? And how did you ultimately get here to Muscatatuck today? Well, I'll start from the very origin. I used to be a uh, a firefighter, 15 years. And while I was a rookie, a couple of years ago, at a house fire, I lost my mentor, Captain Harlow. Uh, may his soul rest in peace. Uh, it, was, it was a house fire. We lost about four souls that day. We, they called out for help and we just couldn't find them. It took about an hour uh, for them to find them. And uh, that was a, a big turning point for me. And uh, I told myself, what could we have done better? Uh, what could I have done better? And so ever since that day, I've been uh, finding ways to make sure my brethren, um, brothers and sisters, firefighters, uh, can actually go into a building, knowing that out of all the extra safety incentives we have, something with the way technology is now, there should be a better way we can, we can, do, we can do stuff. So, and that's how the vision of Rescue Donic started. I appreciate that mindset of what could have we have done better? Why were those lives lost if there was something we could have done that prevented it? So I'd love to kind of hear about some of that 
that methodology. I mean, kind of, that was kind of the vision. Now, like, tell me about some of the, the tech. I mean, what's sort of your approach in terms of this has been a big problem and there's a reason why this competition exists. How are you approaching this when thinking about some of the, the parameters that the first challenge has in place? So he told me about his story about losing his mentor. And um, previously, when I first arrived in the USA, I was doing delivery with um, some of these delivery companies, delivering pizza and stuff like that. So one time I was supposed to come see him, but I explained to him that I couldn't come because I was making a delivery. He said, but you can just stop by. I said, no, I can't do that because they're tracking me. They can see where I am. So eventually we got to see, and we know we talked, laughed about it, but we now said, but how come they can see where you are? I said, yeah, once I take the order, they can see where I am on my phone. So from there, we thought about this idea, okay, they can see where you are on your phone, then why can't we use that as a solution for firefighters to see where they are if they got a phone with them? So that was the, the initial idea. But obviously, it wasn't as simple as that. Then we had started getting the technology that was required and all the other bits and pieces together. But, you know, that was where the conversation started from for this heroes. Add to uh, the question you just asked also to what Cyril said, piggybacking to what we have, what we have, what we've had in the fire service for the last 60 years. Uh, a firefighter goes into a burning building, all covered up, extra ta- uh, oxygen tank in his back. He has a T-pass attached to his oxygen tank, an alarm. He has an incident commander outside that can't see him, that doesn't know the layout of the building. All we have is probably maybe a thermal imaging camera that belongs to that only the captain has in hand. So the rest of the three-man crew are flying, virtually flying blind with the captain who has a teak with him. So, so many use cases where what we have for the past 60 years has not worked for us. Uh, when the fire service has been so, I'm sorry to say, has been so backward technology-wise, and I'm so, it's a, I'm proud to see what NIST and the Department of Commerce and what Indiana University is doing about it. And it looks like this time it's really for real. Yeah, well said. And I mean, I think there's that level of tradition that we have in the fire service, which is one of the best jobs in brother and sisterhood in the world. Having said that, I think we can all acknowledge that we can do things better. Having said that, there's constraints within fire service and public safety. I mean, there's there's budgets, there's, we only have so much cognitive load, our brains are only so big, we can only handle so many decisions at once and we have a job to do. When we get a call, we need to go and you know, either save a life or save property or, or, or mitigate the risk in some capacity. So integrating tech can be hard, especially because they, just, they have to worry about tonight, they have to worry about tomorrow. Tell me about kind of the way you're approaching integrating technology to the firefighter within this experiment that went on the past couple of days. How did you, what's your design methodology and how have you approached integrating technology into the firefighter so they can actually use it and benefit from this technology? I'm happy you're aware of how most fire departments in the country are being run. We have always first in, even before most police officers, I don't know, my friend of mine would disagree with that, but yeah, we're, we're so much constrained by most fire services, fire departments in the country are run by municipalities. And we have combined fire departments, we have volunteer fire departments that are all inter interland and run by budgetary constraints. And a regular firefighter just wants to go save a life and work for 15 or 20 years, get make a pension. But the salary scale is manageable, but it it's also balloons the budget of most small cities. So our methodology, we came was we had to go first of all with cost effectiveness. What can we? The solution we will come up with has to be 
first of all, it has to represent foolproof since life safety is involved. Secondly, it has to be cost-effective. Municipalities should be able to manage, to be able to manage and pay for the solutions that we come up with. So those were that those were the two main frameworks that we imbibe into our solution we have. And tell me more too now about like you talked about the affordability and kind of like the, how it's integrated. One of the big challenges that we have in America is we have, I don't even know the exact number, but some 20,000 plus fire departments, maybe it's 10,000 or 30,000, 30, you know, depending on what you look at. But yeah, there's a lot and many of them are volunteer, but a lot of the focus goes on some of the, the metro fire departments. And, and in essence, maybe sometimes not all first responder budgets are created equal and first responder jobs are kind of different based on, so how, how are you thinking and approaching addressing the solution or do you think it's kind of starting at a particular fire service and, and kind of finding parallels or what are your thoughts on making this a, applicable and, and flexible for all firefighters? You know, we're a startup company and obviously our budget is limited and the product is still starting. We haven't really, we're in the process of getting a marketable product but in terms of the approach, what we plan to do is start with um, local fire departments that are immediately ac accessible to us for various reasons. First of all, we can see them and they can see us as well too. Rather than being on a phone call with someone, you know, you can drive down and if, if they give you required access, you can do a quick demo of the product and they can see what you can offer to them. And I think based on that as well too, it also gives us a chance of getting real-time feedback from them using it. And we plan to offer it to them at, at no cost. For two reasons, like I said, because of the budget, like like we said, and it's going to be a win-win situation where we get to see what they make do, I mean, how they're able to utilize our product. And based on the feedback that we get from them, we can that use that as information that we need to make it more accessible and more user-friendly. Then after that has been done, then we gain some traction. It then gives them some ground to then tell other fire departments and other first responders like the police as well to that, that. We tell them that, okay, we are being used by X, Y, and Z fire department. And that would give them confidence that, okay, if this fire department is using them, it, then it must be good enough for us to try using them. Based on that, it can then give them give us some bargaining points to then ask for, you know, whatever pricing structure we, we decide to go with. Uh, to go into the nitty gritty of the tech itself without uh, spilling in the beans here, we used to be in stealth mode, like I told you earlier, but now that we have our version 1.0, and we are ready to scale that. I can also say with pride that we should be launching a pilot in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we foresee a trickle-down effect. A good news spreads like wildfire to the fire service. So once you hear a good thing, it goes on from there. Uh, we are building, without giving anything too much away, we're building a digital platform uh, that's both victim-centric and rescuer-centric. So it's gonna be mostly, it's gonna be an IoT system a mobile application, a web application that runs on existing hardware with fire departments. So uh, cost effectiveness, that's where cost effectiveness comes in. So no extra hardware, which uh, lessens the burden on the smaller departments and municipalities. The mobile application is going to be used free for firefighters and law enforcement. We're going to scale also after we're taking care of the fire service because they are first in to save civilians. And then we'll also scale to school districts and teachers. School districts are going to pay for it because during active shooter events, we have a roadmap where we can our system can be used in active shooter prevention. 
So they, uh, teachers are going to be paid for a dollar a month. I can say that now. A dollar a month, a teacher will use our app uh, that's going to be paid for by school districts. Law enforcement and firefighters are going to use it free. We're going to give fire fire departments discounts. The smaller departments are going to get discounts. Larger city departments, of course, I'm sure they, they wouldn't mind paying a little bit more. We have a total, like you said, 30,000 fire departments in the country. And those are mostly uh, career and volunteer. I would say there's a school of thought that says that we have about 70,000 combined fire departments and all whatnot, because some departments are combined with police and fire. And actually, I hadn't heard that context before. You mentioned rescue-centric and, and victim-centric. And I think a lot of times, I mean, the, the tech is very important to empower first responders to do their job better. And oftentimes that's to, so they can go and do their job and come home safely. And of course, that's hopefully having the best outcomes for whatever disaster they're solving. But that victim-centric, I hadn't actually, I've never heard that context before. Could you elaborate on that? What do you mean by victim-centric? The same way a first responder uses our device is the same way a victim would use our device and basically helps the rescuer know where the victim is. So the challenge was that rescuers couldn't find their ways inside of buildings. So the same challenges they had finding their ways inside of the buildings is the same way they would, the same challenges they would have after they get into the building, knowing where the potential casualties would be. So with our device, the potential casualties can be made, the locations of the potential casualties can be made known to the first responders quicker. And obviously, the earlier they are located, the quicker they're saved. And obviously, the more lives that can be saved with that. That, hopefully, this uh, buttresses our point uh, clearer. Well, when, you say, when we say victim-centric, now, most safety tools you find out there are victim-centric. I would agree. They're actually made for the victim in mind, believe it or not. But most safety tools out there are not made for the rescuer in mind. Now, we are marrying that those both worlds together in an IoT system where a teacher would put at the push of a button in an active shooter event, sends a signal straight to local law enforcement, bypassing the traditional 911 dispatch system. Never been done before. Foresee it's going to cut rest law enforcement response times in half. Now, the responding police officers to act that same active shooter event immediately, as they leave the station, as knows, sees the exact location of the teacher that pushes that button. Uh, so, and our system can be linked to cameras already, cameras that are all and beacons in schools and, and all whatnot. So it creates a more enhanced environment where uh, with our floor plans, we, of course, our system is going to be floor plan enabled. We're building a database of floor plans, indoor floor plans, that's going to be accessible to law enforcement and school teachers that use our school districts that use our uh, application. So you kind of gave some context on the, some some insights to the, the pilot program that's going coming up soon. And I mean, we're currently in phase four, but it's, it's March, 2023. What are you most excited about in the next six to 60 months? I mean, you got to think a lot on your roadmap and the lots that you're working on and things happening, but what are you fired up about in terms of, I mean, you gave some context on your passion while you started it, but kind of looking forward, what, what's something that excites you? And it's, of course, particular to this, but even if there's something else on your mind that you're excited about, I'm interested. I think for us, it's, you know, 
it's been a long journey. It's sometimes it's been rough. Sometimes it's been exciting. Sometimes it's been disappointing. Sometimes you know you've been rewarding. But we feel that for the fact that we've made it to um, stage four, we must be doing something right. So it's to find out what it is that we are doing right and do more of that and cut off you know what is that's holding us back. But in terms of the uh, what we're looking forward to in the, in the next sixty months, I think we really want to make it a reality. I think what we both talk about is our biggest joy is to see that we've actually saved, even if it's just one life, you know, we know that, you know, something that sort of as a concept is actually, you know, a reality. Okay, a father goes back home to, 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 his, to his family though. And this was as a result of the work that we put in that it did what it was supposed to have done. That's in the more micro sense. In the more micro sense, I would say that the next couple of months after we win by the grace of God. Uh, I don't know about you, but my our mission and our vision has been funneled and channeled by our beliefs, how I was brought up and what I believe in. And in the past couple of months before we got here, we uh, got off our first uh, venture firm that has invested uh, 125,000 in us for an equity stake because they saw our vision and that was a plus for us. And that was actually before we God, we knew we were going to get into phase four. Now, for the next one, 10 to one year, we hope that our pilot will run in rally. We'll, from there, we'll get, a pro, uh, we'll, get product, we'll get the product market fit. We'll get the product market fit. We'll say this is something that's actually uh, managed, uh, economical for the people we want to serve. And then, like he said, a teacher goes back, or a kid goes back home that, that went back home safely because of our tech. That would be big for us. Well said, guys. And I just want to say, I, I, sitting across from you here, it's a, it's, it's kind of nice. We're sitting in different than the other podcast. The, this is sort of just a, a nice little lounge um, conversation. I feel like we could probably talk for an hour. Forever. And we've only been talking about Z-axis track. And I think we could talk a lot about many other things. But I mean, I just want to... I want to say thank you for what you guys are doing. It's definitely the road less traveled, but it's a it's a big problem. And there's a lot of other bright minds here. And it's exciting to think about how you're all going to continue to cross-pollinate and collaborate in different ways. And I'll kind of give you both one last question of uh, if you could give like a, a mic drop or a word of wisdom. And it could be to first responders. It could be to your future self. It could be to other collaborators, but any sort of... Um, final words of wisdom or thoughts that you want to leave with us here today? Uh, I can't remember this uh, Uber, the, uh, the originator of this quote, but it's, it's stuck with me for a long time, for a long, very, very long time. Uh, it says that I ask myself that when I leave this world, it will be a shame that I leave this world without making it at least a little bit better than I met it in the first place. So that's been my mantra. And I, that's what I did with you, and that's been what's been carrying me on for a while. <laughs> yeah, so. And we're sticking to it. Yes. <laughs> I think along the same lines, in terms of what he said, maybe I haven't got a specific quote for it, but I'm of the fish. I'm of the opinion that there's no sh- there's, there's no point you having an idea and not bring and, and not sharing that vision with the rest of the world. I think I, I tell people that the the person who passes away and doesn't share his ideas, you know. There's no difference with that person and somebody who's alive and hasn't shared his ideas as well, too. So, and I also remind him, when we're having conversation, I always tell him that no idea is ever perfect from the onset. But talk about it with someone, you know, develop the idea. It might sound foolish, stupid from the beginning, but later on, when you look at it, you know, from a different perspective, it gets bigger and better as time goes on and gets, you know, 
developed on. Emmanuel and Cyril, I just want to say thank you again. You guys are, you just fire me up. You know, it's, it's, it's later at night tonight, but uh, again, I feel like we could, we're just getting started. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for having us, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Kevin. Till next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Smart Firefighting Podcast today. If you enjoyed what you heard and got any value, please drop us a rating, leave us a comment, or reach out to us on social media. Have a great day, and together we can advance the future of smart firefighting.